0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So yeah, we're in Hebrews chapter 2. We're working our way through. So our Hebrew audience is under persecution. We know that these are, these are uh, people from a Jewish background that have come to believe in Jesus Christ. And they're caught in the tension between this idea of tradition and truth. There's the teachings of the scriptures, which as we've seen are completely consistent all the way from Moses to the present day, talking about the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus is the fullness, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But they have the religious traditions of the Pharisees that have kind of come along and been added on to the teachings of the Bible. And Jesus was very much in conflict with the traditions of men, but not the inspiration of Scripture. And so the believers, the Jewish believers that are now accepting Christ are living in a tension where they are the members of the synagogues And the rulers of the synagogues are the Pharisees who had Jesus put to death. And so they're coming under persecution, having their property seized, in some cases being killed, being thrown out of the synagogues. And they're wondering, is this new way, is this this form of a Jew, being a Jew that believes in Jesus Christ, is this worth all the strife and rejection and pain that I'm going through? The other thing that the, the tension that these people are in is there's the tension of tradition and truth, but there's another cultural t- t- uh, tension that these people are living in. Judaism itself is, is becoming divided along the lines of they believe in the Messiah and they don't believe in the Messiah. But for hundreds of years, there's been another cultural division de- developing it within the Jewish, Jewish community between the what are called the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. The Hebraic Jews are the traditional, uh, very much uh, in the the old school. They want to speak Hebrew. They want to be separate from the rest of the culture. These are the, the heavily conservative, we need to protect our culture, our language, the way we dress, and we can't be like everybody else. They're very suspicious of outsiders. Hellenistic Jews, on the other hand, are heavily influenced by Greek culture. This is where Alexander the Great came in and the the Greeks came in and conquered. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, where they came in and, and conquered the known world and the culture of Greek culture began to permeate throughout the entire area. So, What happened was people were getting interested in Greek philosophy. They were getting interested in Greek culture, Greek art, and they were learning the Greek language. And so many of the Hellenistic Jews were more progressive in this culturally, and so they were taking on many of the attributes of Greek culture. And so this was a divide that was happening within the Jewish culture itself, where it was sort of like, no, we need to speak Hebrew, and we need to be... um, pushing away all these outside influences. And then the ongoing growing number of Hellenistic Greeks who were not even learning Hebrew anymore. Everybody spoke Aramaic in in the region, but the traditionalists understood Hebrew. But the younger generation that was coming up and that had taken root over a couple of hundred years didn't even know Hebrew anymore. To the point where they decided we're going to have to translate the Old Testament into Greek just so a large proportion of the Jewish culture can read their own scriptures. You may have heard of it. It's called the Septuagint. So as they go through and are being influenced by this Greek culture, they're also being influenced by Greek philosophy. So this tension that we're looking at between these two cultures is, for the Hebraic Jews, as they're looking at this idea of Jesus being the Messiah the thing that they have a really hard time grabbing a hold of is the idea that the Messiah is God Himself. For the Hebraic Jews, it's saying, okay, Yahweh, the Creator God of the universe, who spoke all matter into being, who upholds all things by the power of His will, would, be a hu- would, be, would, would come to earth? They expected the Messiah to be a human a prophet, somebody who would be powerfully uh, influenced and empowered by God. But the idea that he would be God himself was very difficult for them to grasp, which is why we see in Hebrews 1, we see all these arguments that he has the exact representation of God's being. He's greater than the angels. They're instructed to worship him. He's higher than the prophets. He's higher than men. That the Messiah is the creator, sustainer, and owner of all things. That is all the author of Hebrews arguing against the Hebraic Jewish presupposition that, God, that Jesus could not have been God and showing them from the Old Testament that the plan the whole time was that the Messiah would be God himself dwelling among us. For the Hellenistic Jews, there was a different issue. It was the opposite issue. They could accept that the Messiah or that Jesus was God, but they had a hard time with the idea that God would take on flesh and become human. It was the humanity of Christ that they really wrestled with because of the Greek philosophy in which they were so steeped. As an example of that, we have Dionysus. Dionysus was the hedonist god of wine and partying. There was a tradition that Dionysus was involved in the creation of the human condition. He was eaten by a titan Let's read about it from, I've got a little clip from the Encyclopedia Britannica on this. It says, an Orphic legend, i.e. based on the stories of Orpheus, Dionysus, under the name Zagreus, was the son of Zeus by his daughter Persephone. At the direction of Hera, the infant Zagreus, or Dionysus, was torn to pieces, cooked and eaten by the evil titans. But his heart was saved by Athena, and now Dionysus was resurrected by Zeus through Semele. Zeus struck the Titans with lightning and they were consumed by fire. From their ashes came the first humans, who thus possessed both the evil nature of the Titans and the divine nature of the gods. You see, there was a, an understanding in Greek philosophy that there was a dual nature to man. But unlike Scripture, the dual nature of man, according to Scripture, is that we in our very souls and our very selves are corrupt. We are both good and evil because of the fall. In in Greek philosophy, it was that the body is evil, the flesh is evil, but the spirit is pure. And so this was expressed by this idea that these evil titans ate up Dionysus, and then when Zoop zapped them, they took all the ashes together, and some of it was titan, and some of it was, was of the gods, and they put it together, and this grotesque human came out of the picture with an evil, fleshly, terrible body, but a spirit that was pure and of the gods. The flesh is a trap of the soul. And so for them, it was, it was really crazy to think that the all-powerful creator God of the universe would take on this disgusting, evil flesh and dwell among us. They were like, you know Jesus. If he was God, he must have just looked like a man, but he wasn't really a man. He just appeared to be that way. It wasn't true. And so we get we read back in 1 in, uh, Corinthians 1, one twenty two and twenty three, and we see a tip of the hat to this tension that they're leaving that they're living in. Paul says in First Cor one twenty two, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified which to the Jews is a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles it's foolishness. The Jews stumble over the idea that God would dwell among us, and that Yahweh would live among the people in this way. The Gentiles think it's foolishness that God would ever take on flesh. And so both of these ideologies from the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews really come to a a point of tension with the idea that Jesus Christ is God and Jesus Christ is man. So we get to Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, and we begin seeing he's made the argument that Jesus is God. He's made the argument that Jesus is God. But now he needs to make the argument that Jesus is human. Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, but one who testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subject. And so the author of Hebrews, we see the font change that we talked about. He's quoting the Old Testament, and he's not sure exactly where it is, but he knows it's written somewhere. So he's saying someone has said somewhere, right? But we know it's Psalm 8, 3 through 6 that he's quoting here. And this is a psalm where the psalmist is sort of looking up into the sky and looking out into the world, and he's contemplating, like, What is man? Who are we? What is our place in all of this? Why do we matter to you, God? Let's look at the psalm. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, and you have ordained man, what is man that you thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under your feet. As the psalmist stares out at the night sky, which was a different night sky than our night sky, right? Without all the light pollution. He looks out at the glory and the wonder of the cosmos. And he says, who are we? Why, you, your word says that you have put us in charge of all of this. That we are supposed to rule over your creation. The God that made all of this cares about me. And he just sort of wonders at the incredible picture of the human plight in the universe that we would even be of any significance at all, given the vastness and the wonder of God's creation, is really something to behold. And he gets this idea from Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 29. He says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God made this wondrous place and then he made us to be in charge of it. What a glorious thing. What an incredible way of viewing What it means to be human is to take care and steward over God's creation. And this is one of the big questions that we have in our society today. Who are we? Why are we here? And does anything matter? The answer from Scripture is, oh yeah. Who you are is magnificent. What you are is important. And what we're supposed to do Matters a lot. We're created in the image of God. We reflect his character, his nature. We're created to rule over the earth and be its caretakers. We're supposed to be united with God, united with our fellow man, connected in love and relationship and harmony, yet also significant with a role of taking care of what God has made. And God, amazingly, wants us involved in his creative process. It's really something. Look at Genesis 2.19. I think we read over this, but we miss something that's so cool about who God is here. So Adam has been formed and he's been given this incredible role and this incredible charge. And what does God do? It says, out of the ground, God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and he brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called him, that was its name. Now, think about that, okay? Think about being an artist or being a creator. When you make something, that's the work of your hands. That's an expression of your creativity and your idea, right? And to give, to delegate someone else to name your creation is a big deal. That's something that would be hard to to delegate, wouldn't it, right? But God so wants us involved. God is a relational God, and he did not give us the power to create all these animals, but he wants us involved and he says, now you tell me what it's called. And there's this incredible picture of Adam being there and like God brings up a cow and Adam's like, cow. And God's like, all right, cow, that's what it'll be, right? <laughs> and he brings these things up and God, and God is bringing us in to the creative process creating a relational connection between his creation, himself, and us. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I know exactly what's happening here. I saw this with my kids. One of the great wonders and glories of being a parent of a very little child, this was years ago now, was watching and asking my kid to name stuff and looking at and understanding the names that he would make up for stuff that already existed and had a different name. I remember my son Logan, when he was two years old, he would make up things, and we would see a helicopter flying in the sky, and he would be like, Bumpy. And we we're like, no, it's a helicopter. And he would be like, Bumpy. And we were like, okay. To this day, when my family's together and a helicopter flies over, we're like, hey, look, it's a Bumpy. Yeah. He's 17, and he's like, yeah. But it was glorious, right? He had all these different names for things. Anything that had anything to, that, to do with technology that had a battery in it, that's a, a phone, a remote control, something like that, that was Gook. And he would want, he was fascinated with technology, and he'd have something, and would be like, Gook, give me your Gook. And then uh, a year later, we got him a goldfish. And I was like, okay, we got to name your fish. And he looked at it, and he was like, frolic. I didn't even know he knew that word frolic but it was just like it was like glory you know like what a name what where where is this coming from what in you is putting these things together and it was a fascinating wonderful relational endearing experience to just see my son involved in the creative act this is what God and Adam were having at the beginning of the world, as he was bringing stuff in front of him, just like, man, what are you going to call this one? Goose. Okay, goose. It's incredible. It's a great picture of how God envisioned his creation and for us to be a part of that creative process. So we go and we look through and we see. He says, you have put all things in subjection under man's feet. You have given man this incredible responsibility for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But we, now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So we were put here to be the caretakers, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all those things. But something happened, the fall And now it's all broken and disjointed. And we don't have the role that we were supposed to have. We live in conflict with one another. We live in conflict with God. And we live in conflict with creation itself. It is not how God made it to be. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden and said, I want to be like God, knowing good and evil for for myself, the mission, the purpose, and the glory of what man is became broken and twisted. So now when we ask that question, what is man, we we can ask what was man supposed to be, and then we look at what actually, what man is, and we see that man is both glorious and evil, loving and selfish, born to rule and yet helpless, creative and yet destructive. This is who we are. This is the result of our rebellion against God. This is on the left is this glorious picture of what we were meant to be. And on the right is the twisted brokenness of where we have gone by the choices that we have made. And we live in that conflict. We are both. You know, for centuries, people have said, well, there's been arguments, right? You know, is man basically good or is man basically evil? And the two sides fight, and they're both wrong because the answer is both. We are at the one and the same time, wonderful and glorious and evil and disgusting. Each and every one of us, all of us, have that within us. And so the author of Hebrews goes on in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We've been talking about man and man's plight in the universe, but now we're talking about Jesus because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom all, th- whom all are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So man was meant to be in this glorious relationship with God. Man became broken. Man became under the wrath of God for all of the evil, pain, and suffering. And so God came himself and took the penalty of death that we deserve upon himself so that we could be glorified what religion what faith in the world has a god who glorifies his people who moves and jumps through the hoops necessary to elevate man every other religion in the world we jump through hoops we jump through and we go and we do things that we hope and hope and hope that will be acceptable and there are many that try to portray Christianity this way, but that is false. The truth of the God of the Bible is He created us for a noble and wonderful person, for purpose. We broke ourselves, we came under condemnation, and then He came and dwelt among us and died for us so that we could be saved. Jesus comes and dies in the place of all people, So that our glory could be restored. That's what he's talking about. That all people, he would die for the sins of all mankind. So that all people could be reconciled. And once more, we would have the opportunity to become what we were meant to be. That's the point. So we go on in verse 11, for both he who sanctifies, sanctifies, very churchy word, all it means is set apart. So he who sets us apart and those who are set apart, meaning Jesus is the one who sets us apart, we are the ones who set apart. So we and Jesus are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call us brothers saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is an extraordinary passage. He's talking about how Jesus' death brought us back into the family of God. And that Jesus, who is God, who is perfect, who has never sinned, never done any evil, looks at us in all of our shame and all of our weakness and all of our brokenness and all of our selfishness, but he is not ashamed of us and he calls us brothers. Brothers and sisters and the family of God connected, grafted, adopted back in to the glorious purpose for which we were created and intended. Therefore, in verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And we might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. That's so fascinating. What is it that drives us to selfishness? What is it that drives us to greed? What is it that drives us to violence? We want to be secure. You could, in a very real way, say the thing that drives all evil in the world is the fear of death. We want to be secure. We want to be comfortable. We want to live a happy life, and we want to be as far from death as for as long as we possibly can. That's the picture. What is death? Death is the curse that is the result of our rebellion. So when Jesus comes in and frees us from the fear of death, what he does is he enables us to live life in a fearless way of generosity and kindness and not giving people what they deserve, but giving them goodness out of the bounty of God's love for us. Freedom from death is freedom from the curse of sin. And Jesus had to become a man for that to happen. And this is God's love that's expressed, it says, uniquely to the human race. That's interesting also. He says they don't go and they don't help angels in this way. That God chose the human race and used us to demonstrate the reality of his glory of who he is. And that Jesus became a man... Because he died for mankind. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 says, Therefore he had to be made like us, his brethren, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. God, in becoming human, experienced the human condition, experienced what it's like to be in flesh. The humanity of Christ is what enables Jesus to die for the sins of mankind. If God, if Jesus were not God, He could not die for everyone. It's His eternal nature that enables Him to die for more than just one person. It would be a life for a life if He weren't God. So it's the divinity, the deity of Christ that enables him to die for everyone, but it's the humanity of Christ that allows him to die for human beings. He has to take our place, and in order to take our place, he has to be one of us. This is important because there are false gospels, there are teachings that claim to be Christianity, but you can always identify a false gospel because it either attacks the humanity or the deity of Christ. That's so important that we understand that. There are a lot of different denominations, there are a lot of different interpretations, but this is one where we, we we have a litmus test on an important issue. Because if the if Christ were not human, he couldn't die for man, and if he were not God, he could not die for all men. And the reason that this is Attacked in this way, the reason that false gospels rise up is because it undermines the power of the biblical heart of salvation. If we don't understand both of these things, then we can't understand how Jesus saves us. So, theologically, it makes sense and it's important. And this is why the author of Hebrews is spending two chapters outlining Jesus is God and Jesus is man. He is both, and it's so important that we understand this. But in addition to the theology behind this, there's also an important understanding how this enables God to understand fully the human experience. You could be all-knowing, you can know all things, but to become a human being and to be hungry and to be thirsty and to feel pain and to have to go to the bathroom. And to feel the desires that humans feel and to be placed in the midst of the human condition is an incredible way of explaining to us that God understands our plight. This is where he says that God is, Jesus was tempted in all things. This gets to another very important issue that we understand. He says he was tempted in all things and yet did not sin. A lot of us think temptation is a sin. In fact, the enemies of God often use this against us. We are engaged in some activity and we think, oh gosh, I should sure do this. And then we think, oh no, that's bad, I won't do it. And then we're like, yeah, but I'm really thinking about it. And then the enemy of God comes into our heart and says, well, you've already sinned by being tempted, so you might as well go the rest of the way and just do it. But here, the Bible clearly delineates that temptation is not sin. Having the thought I should lust after this person, having the thought that I should burst out in anger at the way this person is treating me is not sin. That's the moment where sin is crouching at your door. But you can decide whether you will go with the sin or take that thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. It's so important that we understand that. This also shows us about the heart of God. God's desire to be close to us. Just how relational God is where He literally took on a body and dwelled among us and lived with us and died for us so that we could be close to Him. It proves God's heart. What kind of God are we dealing with? What is He like? Is He just looking at us and He's like, you're disgusting and you're gross and you're pathetic and I wish I hadn't made you. That's how the enemies of God want to portray the heart of God. But the heart of God is that He comes down and He moves into our mess. We are disgusted, but He is not deterred. He is not deterred by the greed and the filth and the selfishness of the human problem, he comes down, he moves into the middle of the human condition. He exposes himself to our weakness, our wickedness. He becomes subject to our whims. We spit on him, we mock him. We hurl insults at him, we beat him, and we hang him on a cross. And he is willing to do that. Because he wants us to be close to him. I ask you, is this the kind of God that we would make up? This is a completely different picture of who God is and how he works. Whenever man makes up a religion, God is an overgrown human being who's hungry and thirsty and horny, and he wants to do things and use his power, and he wants to subjugate us and make us his slaves. Only the God of the Bible compassionately looks at our suffering and moves towards us and puts himself in a position where he would be abused by us so that he can save us. He's not like us. We don't do things like this, but we were made to be like him. That's the vision, that's the picture. And that's where we get the value of all human life. Why do we have this sense that human life matters? You know, that hasn't always been true in history. There have been times where people have viewed human life as very uh, expendable, not precious, not valuable at all. Our modern society still, of all the other biblical values that we've thrown off, still has this innate sense that human life matters. Why? Why? Because God has taught us this. This is one of the last vestiges we have of a biblical worldview in Western society. Human life matters, and we're losing it. We're losing it. We're looking at the way that we treat each other. We're looking at the way that we fight each other. We disagree with each other. And we're starting to decide that it's just easier to kill one another than disagree. We are God's self-portrait. And we cannot, we must not allow ourselves to be hardened by the daily killings that we read in the news. It's so easy just to say, oh, it happened again. But we must not do that. What would you do? What, how would the world react if all of a sudden news flash, breaking news, the Mona Lisa Has been destroyed. How would that impact you? Would that impact you more or less than another shooting tomorrow where two or three people were killed? I had to ask myself that question because I realized I'm becoming hardened to this. It's becoming every day, it's becoming, okay, but a work of art? Oh my God, that would be something, what a travesty. And God says, You are my Mona Lisa, all of you are my Mona Lisa. You're so much more important than any of that. And look at how we react. Look at how we respond. As our hearts get hardened and the value of human life gets lowered and the way that we see each other, the way that we treat each other, God thought it was worthy to die for us. You, as an individual, were worthy of Him going to the cross Only, if only, we could see each other the way that God sees us. If we had the value in every human life that God has for us. Regardless of faith, regardless of wealth, regardless of race, we are the family and creation of God. We are His self-portrait. And we do not see each other this way and we need to because that is how we're going to change the world that is how things change is by getting god's perspective politics isn't going to do it politics has some value but politics at the end of the day is the world trying to fix the world and it is broken so, of course, our politics are broken. What's going to change the world is you and I seeing our fellow man through the eyes of Jesus Christ and acting accordingly, person by person, relationship by relationship, to go and make disciples of all nations teaching them to obey Jesus' commandments and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is how the world changes. That's how Jesus changed the world. That's how we are supposed to change the world. And it starts right here with you and I and what we think and what we do and how we see our fellow man. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory put it this way. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you met now, meet now, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one of these destinations. It is the light of these overwhelming possibility, it's the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendship, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom with we joke, work, marry, snub, exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind and it is in fact the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption and our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parries merriment. That's where we need to be. That's the takeaway. The takeaway is you are loved, you are valued, and you are important. Every single one of you, everyone in this room, everyone you know, everyone that you've ever met, is of great inestimable value because our God has decreed it so. And he has demonstrated it by dying for us on the cross. The question for us is will we allow our view of others to be transformed? Will we let ourselves see one another through God's eyes? And that process begins with letting God into your heart. You can't see the world through God's eyes if he won't lend them to you. We have to turn to God in faith, in our heart. We have to recognize the fact that we are broken, we are fallen, we are selfish, and we are greedy, while also recognizing that there is greatness within us, something noble, something good, something kind, something loving. And we have to ask that Jesus Christ's death on the cross would apply to us. And be adopted, be grafted into the family of God and be, give, be given his heart and his eyes to see. And then we will change the world. One person at a time. The world would become heaven on earth if we treated all people with the respect and value that God has for us. It would. And while we know that that is not the end, the way that the world goes, we are called to seek that outcome. We are called to move towards our family, our friends, our neighbors, and our co-workers with the love and truth of God. Not that the whole world will be saved, but that all who are willing, all who would be inclined, all who would open their hearts to God would know and experience a relationship with him. That's what we got from Hebrews 2. Why don't we pray? God, it's easy to read the news and to watch what's happening in the world and to feel defeated and discouraged. It's easy to harden our hearts and just get on with our corner and hope that nothing happens to the people that we care about. But we just pray that we can have a soft heart Pray that we can move toward one another in compassion. Pray that in a time of darkness, and a time of division, in a time of growing hatred, that we can stand out against that wicked backdrop with the glory of your love and your truth and your heart and the value of your creation, especially of our fellow men. Amen.